Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Listeners, to our super spooktastic episode, I guess. <laughs> super spooktastic. Spooktastic. <laughs> but happy Halloween, everybody. This is coming out on October 31st, so I hope you guys are having a beautiful day. Yes, I hope you all have some fun, spooky plans to celebrate today's holiday and that you're going to enjoy our episode, our, our bonus episode, hopefully. Uh, we figured it was the, the perfect time of year to show off a bonus episode in spooky season. Absolutely. I was hoping for listener tales, but it's okay. <laughs> I next understand. Year, next year there will be listener tales. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but yeah, we wanted to show off for our first bonus episode ever that we were going to do something kind of spooky for the season because I think we discussed a couple of times like leading into the Stanley Hotel that it's it's spooky season and we both thrive during the season of the year. Oh, yes, definitely. This is our time of year. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's it's the burr months now. I can have hot chocolate and magma temperature coffee. I really can't because it's, <laughs> it's still fucking 80 degrees here. Not even 80. I'm looking at the temperature right now. It's fucking 90. It's probably not going to be that on the 31st, but it's fucking 90 right now. I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> I just like having pumpkins and gourds of all kinds oh everywhere. I'm a big fan of gourds of all kinds, especially pumpkins. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm like, there, there's a reason I go by the pumpkin witch, too, because, oh, my God. Re, I've counted the amount of pumpkins that I have in my fucking possession. Do you want to know how many pumpkins I have? Like, decor <laughs> pumpkins? How, how many pumpkins do you have? Well, when I moved to Glendale, I was resting at a peaceful 42. Since then, I've added... <laughs> I have added at least five to seven more to my collection. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, I, I will always take pumpkins. I love them. That and dinosaurs. That's a lot of pumpkins. Like, dinosaurs and pumpkins. I should have really, like, gone down to the storage unit because all my pumpkins are down there right now. Should have gone down to the storage unit, grabbed them, and, like, set them up like under Terry the T-Rex back behind me for streaming and recording. <laughs> But instead, he has a cauldron with a little dragon inside of it, so he's doing good. <laughs> that would have been the perfect backdrop for streaming for the spooky season. Right? If my internet worked. But I guess That's it'll true. have to wait until next year. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, today we're going to be talking about Halloween traditions so, without further ado, I don't think there's any trigger warnings for this episode. I might be mistaken. But if there are, let's get started with those and our disclaimer. 
While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It's fine. I guess I had to leave a space there anyway. That's that's okay. At least I know where the where the trigger warnings is at. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed our disclaimer and possible trigger warnings. I'm not entirely sure if we have any for this episode. I don't believe that we do. But... Surprise to everybody involved! <laughs> yes, a very big surprise to everybody involved, considering I don't think we've had really any... Well, I guess we have had like a couple, but it is so few and far between that we actually have yes. episodes with no trigger warnings. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize that until we started doing the daily Instagram and then, like, trying to look up trigger warnings for all the things. I was like, oh my gosh, almost every episode has a trigger warning. It's just endless. There's very few without one. It's it's like a rare gem. It really is. I'm like, I think I've even, like, forgotten, like, when I do post trigger warnings, like, actually, like, post the trigger warnings on the Instagram. So I'm like, you know what? When they make it past the banter, they're going to find out anyway. they'll find it eventually (laughs) they'll figure it out soon enough (laughs) but anyways today we are talking halloween traditions and some history behind halloween and to kind of kick us off with that re what do you do on all hallows eve Ooh, uh, well, I'm a big fan of costumes and masks and dressing up, so I almost always put on some sort of costume. And then I'm a huge fan of, well, you already know I'm a huge fan of uh, pumpkins, that has been stated, (laughs) but I also love jack-o'-lanterns. And so while I don't do it on Halloween, leading up to Halloween, I always get probably more pumpkins than I should, and then have to carve them all. But this year, you know, I I mixed it up. I also got some that were just more like decorative pumpkins, because I'm also a fan of pumpkins just as decoration that don't need to be carved, because last year I got way too many, and I was like, this is too much work. (laughs) But... (laughs) Yeah, I'm all about the costumes and the jack-o'-lanterns. Uh, I I kind of want to give out candy to kids because that was like one of my favorite things growing up was trick-or-treating. But I guess for like a while now, my schedule's just been so wonky. I'm usually not home at the appropriate time. And then nowadays it's also weird where like, because stranger danger a lot of trick-or-treating doesn't like happen traditionally at houses anymore in some neighborhoods they'll like go to either the safer neighborhoods or the like i know in havasu they like go down the main street and all the businesses have candy and mm-hmm. so because of that too i think i kind of got away from handing out the candy not because i don't want to do it but just money and then not being home and all that but otherwise i'd probably be doing that too but yeah and then horror movies you know scary shit <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 
I'm kind of on the same page as we've established. I also like pumpkins. I really, really <laughs> like pumpkins. I usually go with ones that aren't going to rot before my eyes, but <laughs> I, I do have a couple of decorative pumpkins sitting around the house right now. I think I have two left right now, and I recently like dug into one. I think I was messaging you the night that I did because we were getting ready to record, and I'm like, I really just want some pumpkin sauce pasta. And I didn't want to open a can. I wanted it fresh. So I roasted this pumpkin alive. It was it was fantastic. The sauce came out great. It was not done that evening. It was done the next day because I was like, we need to record. And then by the time we got done recording, I'm like, I have no energy to cook. I'm going to have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely have a couple acorn squashes. And then I think I have one butternut squash in my kitchen right now, which I usually turn into soup or a pasta sauce or something savory because I really don't like sweet vegetables. But like, for example, acorn squash goes really good with more earthy tones like mushrooms, wild rice, truffles, uh, yeah, truffle oil. I thought I was about to say truffle salt. I'm like, that sounds really good, too. I wonder if they make that. <laughs> <laughs> but I usually do those types of things, like, leading up to the holiday. On Samhain itself, I actually usually light a couple of candles for ancestors or deities. I do a couple of tarot readings. I usually give free tarot readings to my friends. Um Horror movies, of course, because spooky shit. And that usually comes after everything's kind of been, like, set up and prepared. I do need to go get candles before Halloween takes place. Samhain. <laughs> because I have <laughs> I have two very sad-looking deity candles on my altar right now. But my altar did get cleaned this last weekend, and it is decorated for Samhain with a couple of pumpkins, some old fall leaves... And a couple of other things going on on there. So I'm actually very excited. I think I might even move one of the pictures I have of my grandparents over there, too. Oh, nice. That sounds lovely. But yeah, that's kind of what I do for Samhain or Halloween. And you'll learn here very quickly that those two do coincide. It's just different styles of holiday traditions. <laughs> <laughs> originating factors but anyways without further ado should we get started re yeah let's get into it okay so today i'm covering the origin of halloween which dates back nearly 2000 years ago to the ancient celtics the celts at the time resided in a small section between the united kingdom and northern France, known today as Ireland, and celebrated the festival known as Samhain. Samhain takes place between October 31st and November 1st, and is noted as the most significant of the quarterly fire festivals, taking place between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. It marks the end of summer and the harvest season and the coming of the cold, harsh, bitter winter which was usually associated with human death, especially during this volatile time in human history where people would get sick and they would die or simply succumb to natural causes such as starvation or, unfortunately, freezing. 
The Celts believed that during this day, the boundary between the world of the living and the world at the dead would become blurred, allowing the dead and other spiritual creatures to cross over and return to Earth. Many of you may have heard this phrase in the past couple episodes, I think, where I say (laughs) the veil is thinning. That's basically what it means, is that that line between the living and the world of like the dead is starting to blur to the point where it becomes its thinnest during Samhain. During this day, hearths were left to burn out while the final harvest was gathered, and once the harvest was complete, people would begin the process of Samhain. Offerings would be left outside of villages and fields for cryptic creatures, which I do hope that Rhiannon covers some of these someday. Doesn't have to be soon, but someday. (laughs) If you give me some cryptids, I'll add them to my list. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to give you four cryptids, so get ready. So, one of these specific creatures was called Pu'aka. I'm not entirely sure if that's correct. That's the pronunciation guide that I was given for it. Which would harvest offerings from the fields. Um, Lady Gwyn was another one. She was a headless woman in white that would often chase night wanderers. She was very often accompanied by a black pig. Huh. Right? Uh-huh. I was like, hmm, okay. And then the Dulahan, which appeared as impish creatures, sometimes headless men on horses, who carried their own heads riding flamed-eyed horses and would mark an omen of death to anyone that encountered them. Damn, that's some seriously scary shit going right? on. Right? I'm like, I wonder if that's kind of the origin story for Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, definitely has some Sleepy Hollow vibes going for it. It really does. I'm like, I wonder if they got some inspiration from that because, wow. Then there are a group of hunters known as the Fairy Host who haunted Samhain night and kidnapped people. Similar to Slaush, who would come from the West to enter houses and steal souls. Wow. So, during the celebration, people typically wore costumes consisting of animal heads and skins and would attempt to tell each other's fortunes. Joining the community, druid priests would ignite a fire using a wheel-like tool that would cause friction and basically sparks to fly, igniting the flames of bonfires. The wheel was considered a representation of the sun and was commonly used in prayers. These bonfires were usually sacrificial spots for people to burn dead crops and animals to give to their Celtic deities. It was a common belief that during this time, spirits would cause trouble and damage crops. However, it wasn't all bad. With the spirits roaming the earth, the Celts also believed that it was a good time to have their fortunes read and predicted by their Druid and Celtic priests because the boundary was blurred. This is also seen in a regular practice at the time since winter was commonly unforgiving and many people just wanted to know what waited for them in the coming months. When the celebration was over, using the bonfire as a communal flame, they would bring a piece back to their house to reignite their hearth. This was a sacred 
traditions help protect them from the coming winter. Hmm. So, moving forward. We're going into the Roman Empire of Fieralia and Pomona. Now, these were basically two different festivals, and they started shortly after, like, 43 AD, when the Roman Empire had conquered a majority of the Celtic territory and started their 400-year rule over them. Now, these two festivals were combined with the Celtic tradition of Samhain. The first one, which was Fieralia, was a late day in October that the Romans commonly commemorated the passing of their dead. However, the date and what like area that fits into is still under debate of what day it actually is. The second was Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. Pomona was symbolized by the apple and is commonly incorporated into celebrations as well for fertility and those types of offerings to the goddess. This, for instance, can be translated today's standards as bobbing for apples or apple peeling. Wow. So, moving forward, by the 9th century, Christianity had spread its influence across Europe and into Celtic lands, where it gradually blended with older Celtic practices. By May 13th of 609 AD, All Martyrs Day was established to honor Christian martyrs, and a Catholic feast was established as well. This date was later moved from May 13th to November 1st, establishing All Saints Day. And by 1000 AD, the church made November 2nd All Souls Day to honor the dead. It's still widely believed that the church may have had a attempted replacing of Celtic festivals of the dead with a Christian-sanctioned holiday which comes back to All Souls Day, which is celebrated similarly to Samhain with big bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costumes as saints, angels, and possibly devils. It was also called All Hallows or All Hallows Mass. And the night before, it began to be called All Hallows Eve, which eventually translated into Halloween. I can believe that it was used as a way to kind of get control over the Celts and kind of, I don't know, I guess convert them in a way. Because I'll I'll reference to some of that as well a little bit later with it kind of being a power-grabbing technique since religious figures are often looked up to and hold a lot of sway over the populace that if you have competing religions then you can run into an issue where if one in particular is looking for power over the populace and they're competing with another religion then it makes sense that if you can replace that then you can gain more power and more followers so unfortunately i think that comes back to Humans are just shitty people sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we're just kind of, we're, that's the kind of creature we are. We're not always great. And, and, and fortunately, it's one of those things where I think it can definitely be used as a power grab uh, by the wrong people. Yeah, and we'll definitely see that moving forward with other holidays such as Yule and Ostra. Um, those are definitely other holidays that are considered to be transformations from old pagan beliefs into Christianity beliefs to kind of do that powerhouse situation, but also to play 
I wouldn't say devil's advocate, but there are other things in work here too. Like it's natural for a lot of people to fear the unknown. And even outside of holidays, we'll see that there are witch trials, which I do plan to cover in the future, not the near future, but in the future. There are many witch trials that happen between Ireland, Scotland, and a lot in the United States of which we know of. And then there's still some that play a role today in other third world countries. And then there's the other aspect of fearing the unknown. And that comes down to like the satanic panic that happened, I think, in the 70s, like 80s, uh, 70s, 80s. Yeah, that sounds right. I can't mm-hmm. remember the exact time period, but it sounds right, 70s and 80s. Where... Not to say all Christians are this way, and they're absolutely not, because I have a lot of friends that do practice the Christian religion and the Christian faith, and I have family members that do, but there are still some people that view these types of holidays to be Satan's work, and that's absolutely not true. Yeah, someone, I won't name names, but someone I was very close to growing up, uh, I was very confused when I was, as a kid, very excited about Halloween, and one of my very close friends was not allowed to participate when I asked why. I heard it was because it's the devil's holiday, and I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) But you get free candy. I didn't think the devil would be giving out free candy. (laughs) No, you trade your soul for that shit. (laughs) You want a Snickers bar? Give me your soul. Sign the contract. We you're not you blood. when you're hungry. <laughs> oh my God. But anyways, moving forward. So Halloween in America. Halloween was extremely limited in colonial New England due to its rigid protestant belief system which like i said will view later in many of my cases it was more commonly practiced in celebrated in maryland and the southern colonies as time moved forward different customs and beliefs began to form between european ethnic groups and american indigenous groups these began to mesh into a distinct version of halloween with play parties. These were public events which were held in celebration of harvest, sharing stories of the dead, ghosts, mischief of all kinds, and supporting mischief making. And some people actually call Halloween mischief night because you're meant to go make mischief and play pranks, but not get into too much trouble, obviously. (laughs) Um, telling each other's fortunes and dancing and singing possibly by a bonfire or in a well-lit room, to say the least. By the middle of the 19th century, annual autumn leaf festivals were common, but Halloween was still not celebrated throughout the growing country. This changed during the Irish potato famine, which saw a wave of new immigrants fleeing in hope to gain a new chance at life. This helped to popularize the celebration of Halloween nationally and what we know today. Then there's the Samhain revival with modern day paganism. Hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) A revival of Samhain resembling the traditional roots began around 1980 with the growing popularity of Wicca. I'm not Wiccan. There's a difference. 
The Wiccan celebration of Samhain takes place in many different forms and stages, from traditional fire ceremonies to celebrating in activities honoring nature and ancestors. Wiccans look at Samhain as a passing of the year or the witch's new year, usually holding music and dance celebrations. Now, I do view Samhain as the witch's new year, but typically Wicca has more of a religious aspect to it, whereas paganism doesn't really have to do that. And you can also be a witch and not be pagan or Wiccan. So that's all I have for the history of Halloween. But we'll go a little bit more in depth with a couple of aspects. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So, do you want me to start off? Yeah, go for it. So, the first tradition that I have for you today is masks and costumes. So, there is a wide debate on the origins of masks and costumes for Halloween and what purpose they served. The most predominant theory is that the ancestors or other spiritual forces crossing the plane between the world of the living and the world of the dead were seen as monsters that may try to kidnap you and take you back with them. Costumes were used as disguises that people wore during this time to avoid wandering spirits that may mistake them as their own and mainly scare off malevolent forces. Which, I mean, if somebody came walking up to me wearing, like, animal parts, I'd be kind of scared, too. (laughs) Yeah, you can't really blame them. (laughs) It's also theorized that costumes were made for people to more easily get away with pranks and mischief made around the village. This tradition continues today and goes into a more popular theory that it's allowed people to mimic their favorite characters or their idols. In the 1920s and 30s, people were holding masquerades aimed at both adults and children at the time. Costume preparations would sometimes begin in early August, and costumes slowly started to become aimed towards more popular culture figures, such as celebrities and... Then there's also the fantasy aspect of it, which would be like pirates, gypsies, and unfortunately, some that might not be as smiled upon today. Um, People would dress up as homeless individuals. Yeah, I'm like, I I don't really. mm, mm, mm." Uh, Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, I'm like. Granted, today, I think we still see a lot of cultural appropriation with some of these costumes that isn't really appropriate, but we won't go into that aspect too much. Yeah. (laughs) During this time, Halloween pranks began to become a nationwide phenomenon, again, which leads to vandalism and rioting because now we have more tools and we don't know where that boundary is. During the mid 1940s, destruction led to an effort to move away from the mischievous, oh my God, I can't say mischievous, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) During the mid 1940s, destruction led to an effort to move away from the mischievous behavior and possible criminal damage 
and make the holiday more about dressing up and focusing towards younger children and handing out candy. It was around the mid-60s to early 70s that adults started to regularly dress up again with more fun and frightening outfits with the rise of popular cultural like phenomenons like Star Wars and Indiana Jones. This is also where people began to ditch the usual masks and opt for basically showing their faces rather than having full makeup coverage too. And that's how we got to where we are today with costumes and masks. Awesome. Well, thank you for the history and the, the costumes lead up. Yes. I'm definitely a huge fan of costumes, so I was, I was curious how costumes came into play. <laughs> There's probably other aspects, too, but as far as, like, searching the web and not having, like, access to a certain, like, amount of sources, because we obviously don't have, like, newspapers.com or things like that, um, these were the types of things that I was finding, and especially, like, I recommend uh, Silver Ravenwolf, I believe her name is. Like, her books are, oh, sorry, yeah, Silver Ravenwolf. Her books are amazing, and I got a lot of my references from her Halloween book that was produced in 2013. Awesome. Thank you for the recommendation. She's really dug into a lot of the history. <laughs> All right, well, we'll move along to our next Halloween tradition, and I'm going to be talking about jack-o'-lanterns. I'm ready. Do it. <laughs> All right, so jack-o'-lanterns also have a long storied history to cover, uh, also originating from Celtic cultures. And so thousands of years ago, Celtic cultures actually carved faces into round fruits and vegetables. Nathan Mannion, a senior curator at the Irish Immigration Museum, stated that it may have originated uh, during the BC era as a symbol of war trophies. <laughs> and if you don't know what I mean by that, I'm talking about head veneration. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, you know, Yep. Somebody's just carving pumpkins as war trophies? The hell? Like, <laughs> I conquer your land. Here's a pumpkin. What? <laughs> I wish. Damn, oh, I, I, I no. would like some pumpkins. Right? No, no. We're, we're carving uh, pum- fruits and vegetables to represent the decapitated heads of our enemies. Is what oh, I'm doing. no. I didn't know that. <laughs> very, very dark origins of our beloved jack o now, it did eventually evolve into a tradition during Samhain when scary faces would be carved into root vegetables, which are plentiful during the fall harvest, and then these carved root vegetables would then be used to scare away restless spirits. And so that's going back to what Katie was saying of when the veil is so thin on All Hallows' Eve, uh, or during the celebration of Samhain, that... Uh, they believed these spirits and these cryptids could potentially be a danger to them. So to scare those away, besides uh, dressing up in scary costumes and putting out offerings, another thing they would do is carve these root vegetables to put out these scary faces that would hopefully scare away these, these spirits that they didn't want coming around. Another reason these carved root vegetables 
were also popular is because they were significantly cheaper than a metal lantern. And if you carved faces into the vegetables, that allowed for greater light dispersal, where the lantern would be brighter. Uh, so there is, for sure, multiple purposes beyond just the tradition of scaring away spirits uh, when it comes to the jack-o'-lanterns. They were also functional. Now, I'll be sure to post this to our Instagram when we get to the Instagram post for today's episode. But I have a photo for you, Katie. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Go ahead and pop in there and we'll see what you think and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> okay. Well. Uh, is that fucking. <laughs> is that. It looks like a turnip, possibly. Is that what that yep. is? Okay. <laughs> so, so, what Katie is looking at right now is a. An example of a turnip jack-o'-lantern. That's actually a plaster casting of one of these uh, jack-o'-lanterns, but that that one's actually from the early 1900s. So unfortunately, since uh, unless we have some t- fossilized turnips somewhere, we don't have turnips that were carved from thousands of years ago. But we do have uh, a plaster replication of one from the early 1900s. So there's an early jack-o'-lantern to give you an idea of what these scary root vegetables looked like. I don't, I don't like its little teeth. Does that make me a cryptid? It makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really like the teeth either. I was like, you know, the face isn't too bad. That doesn't make me too uncomfortable, but I definitely did not like the little teeth. (laughs) I I don't like the little teeth. Like the eyes, I I can get behind the like, yeah, they're going to be lit up. But the the little baby teeth, it reminds me of, um, oh God, what the fuck is that movie? The one where, like, the chain falls off the doll. Trilogy of Terror. I don't know if I've seen that one. I don't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we will be sure to post that to the Instagram. So, as always, if you aren't already following our Instagram, be sure to go check it out. Uh, And you can (laughs) witness our turnip jack-o'-lantern from the early 1900s as well. Now... Uh, moving forward in history here, later on, Christians also engaged in carving faces into vegetables and lighting them up during All Hallows' Eve, which, like Katie said, was what became Halloween. And, uh, so this was a practice that continued past, uh, just the Celts doing this. Now, what about the name Jack-O-Lantern? We know where the actual practice of carving vegetables has come from, but what about the actual name? So... One of the earliest origins that this can be traced back to is actually a tale about a character named Stingy Jack, who apparently was a meddling blacksmith who enjoyed drinking. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say same Jack, same, but I am nor a blacksmith, nor am I a huge drinker, so I guess I do not relate to Jack. Now, there's multiple variations on this tale, uh, but the one that I read first was that Stingy Jack went and asked the devil to join him for a drink, which the devil did agree to. But because he's stingy, he ends up convincing the devil to turn into a coin so that he doesn't actually have to pay with any real money. However, instead of paying with 
the devil transformed into the coin. He instead sticks the devil in his pocket with a cross. So this traps the devil in this form so that he can't regain his power or his original form. Now, eventually, Jack does release the devil with the promise that his soul will not be taken if he dies and he will be left alone for the next year. Now, a year comes and goes and he knows the devil is going to come get back at him for this trick. And so, again, he tricks the devil. This time, he convinces the devil to climb into a tree to pick fruit, and then he carves a cross into the trunk of the tree. Now, to get the devil to come back down, he first has to agree not to bother Jack for a whole another ten years, which the devil agrees to. Now, within the next decade, Stingy Jack actually does pass away. However, the devil made this promise that he was not going to take his soul. And so the devil does not bring him to hell. However, God will not take him to heaven either because obviously Stingy Jack is not a very honorable person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how is he tricking the devil so many times? I feel like the devil would not be one to be tricked so many times. Right? I'm like, I feel like the devil is smart enough that after the first time he'd be like, no, fuck you. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I don't trust anything you say. I don't trust so you. <laughs> But in any case, since Stingy Jack, when he passes away, he cannot go to heaven or hell uh, for the afterlife, for all eternity. Instead, he has to wander between the two. And so the devil gives Jack a coal to place into his carved turnip lantern to light his way. Now, there is, uh, like I said, there's different variations on the story. However, all of them tend to have the common thread that the devil's tricked at least two times and thus, he ends up, uh, Stingy Jack ends up being barred from both heaven and hell and is given a coal by the devil. Uh, this also acts as a morality tale, which we've discussed a little bit before on the podcast, in which case, uh, uh, with this story, it would basically be saying, don't be like Jack, or it's, this could happen to you, and you could be stuck in the afterlife between heaven and hell. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do Ooh. that. Don't be like Jack. <laughs> no. During the 19th and 20th centuries, there was an influx of Irish immigration to the U.S. Like Katie said, during the potato famine, we see a lot of Irish immigrants coming over here. Uh, when these European immigrants came to the U.S., they found pumpkins, which worked much better for carving these jack-o'-lanterns. And uh, another actual origin, uh, and personally, I feel like it's probably a mix of these different origins, because Stingy Jack uh, himself, like, he was known to carry the turnip lantern, so I suppose that's where that origin's coming from. But I feel like we have uh, maybe a mix of a few origins here. So the next origin that's proposed is that from Britain, so these immigrants coming from Ireland and other parts of Great Britain, a common term in the 17th century was actually Jack of the Lantern, and that referred to Night Watchmen. Uh, also because at that time, if you didn't know a man, you would call him Jack. That was a common way to refer to a stranger you didn't know who was male. Uh, but eventually it was shortened to Jack O'Lantern. And this began to be used to be describe vegetable lanterns. So the sources I read, um, some say, you know, the, the name comes from Stingy Jack. Some say, oh, well, the name comes from this British origin of Jack O'Lantern. I'm assuming it's probably a mix of the two that we have the story about Jack who carries a lantern, but we also have this common term, Jack-o'-lantern, 
that's used to um, represent a man carrying a lantern. And thus, when we start carving vegetable lanterns with faces, it makes sense to treat uh, name that the same way as we would a man carrying a lantern. Finally, there's one last origin for the name jack-o'-lantern I came across. And that is that will-o'-wisps, the uh, glowing orbs that will like dart through the swamp and lead people into the darkness. They are also called Jack of the Lanterns. And uh, really quick on Will-O-Wisps, they were believed to be wandering souls carrying a light. And so therefore the carved faces in the vegetables were compared to Will-O-Wisps because they were believed to be basically like, excuse me, the face of the soul and like carrying the lantern. I'm not going to do a deep dive on Will-O-Wisps right now, though, because that was already a topic I wanted to cover. <laughs> oh, goody. <laughs> nope. And so we won't do the deep dive into the potential scientific explanations of why why do we see these lights in the swamps at night and that potentially lead people to their death. <laughs> yeah. So don't don't go follow the Will-O-Wisps if you see any. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Will-O-Wisps are uh, interesting things. But I did want to throw that out there as well, that that's another possible origin that came up, is that that's another name for a Will-O-Wisp, is a jack-o'-lantern. Um, and since it's a floating light, uh, these vegetable lanterns could be compared to that. Now, as far as jack-o'-lanterns in America, the first record we have of these jack-o'-lanterns appearing in America was actually Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story in 1835, the Great Carbuncle. And the first image of a jack-o'-lantern in America was in an 1867 issue of Harper's Weekly. So it sounds like by the early to mid-19th century, is uh, we definitely have jack-o'-lanterns common enough in the, the U.S. as far as like a Halloween practice that they are starting to pop up in the more like popular culture sources. And during the 19th century, um, so same century, um, Halloween became more popular as well. And so that was also probably a reason the jack-o'-lantern started becoming more popular is its connection to Halloween. And the jack-o'-lantern actually became a really iconic symbol of Halloween. Now, for modern day jack-o'-lanterns, just one really quick fun fact before we wrap up this little section right here. According to USDA... More than 1 billion tons of pumpkins were harvested in 2021 from just the top six pumpkin-producing states in the United States. So you can only imagine like Holy how many pumpkins shit. we harvested last year. Whew, that's a lot of pumpkins. That's sad, because I know a lot of that goes to waste, too, because people just don't know yeah. what to do with the guts or how to prepare pumpkin seeds. So it's most of it ends up in landfills. That's a good point. I didn't even think of covering that, like what you can do with all the different parts of the pumpkin. So we might have to do a little post on that <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can definitely imagine. I mean, some of those are pie pumpkins that are being used for cooking. And I'm sure some of those are more just, like I said, I have some pumpkins that are just decorative that I just set out. But we can also be sure that a lot of those pumpkins are getting carved for Halloween. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And all there right, are all... multiple different things that you can do with seeds, such as what I plan to do one day, hopefully in the near future. I'm manifesting that it'll be in the near future. I'm just <laughs> going and scattering them in my backyard so I can have my own personal pumpkin patch. <laughs> yes, I want my own pumpkin patch. 100 times yes. <laughs> 100 times yes. I want to scatter them like around my house. So like I have pumpkins growing around my house. I'm like, yes, the witch aesthetic is real here. <laughs> 
my black Victorian house. That that's the dream. <laughs> well, I'll turn it back over to you, Katie. All righty. Well, moving forward, we're going to talk a little bit about trick or treating. And Re, I actually have a poem for you today. Isn't that great? That is great. I love me some poetry. I don't think I've ever done poetry before, so this is this is something new for me. <laughs> Woo! New experiences together on the podcast. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so here we go, and I will try my best to give it some dramatics. Soul, soul, or a soul cake. Pray, good mistress, for a soul cake. One for Peter, two for Paul, three for them who made us all. Soul, soul, or an apple or two. If you've got no apples, pears will do. Up with your kettle and down with your pan. Give me a good big one and I'll be gone. Soul, soul, or a soul cake. An apple or pear, a plum or cherry is a very good thing to make us merry. Hmm. Okay. I'm not entirely sure what the title of that was, but I did that I did get that out of uh, Ravenwolf's book, Halloween, and I will have that listed in the show notes, so go ahead and go check that out. So, trick-or-treating comes from the Celtic practice of leaving special food offerings for the dead, creatures, and their deities, in hopes that it would keep these spiritual beings away from their houses or appease or prevent them from attempting to enter them. It also dates back to All Souls Day parades in England. During these times, these festivals would have bread, wine, or pastries to be left out for children or homeless who would travel door to door begging for them. This was usually returned with a promise for these individuals to pray for the giver's family and their past relatives. The most common of these pastries was called soul cakes which is a round cake resembling the texture of a shortbread biscuit with sweet oh. spices and possibly even fruit at times. And I didn't fully know this, but I've actually had soul cakes before. What? <laughs> yes, I actually had them while I was in England. Damn. I was just thinking, like, those sound pleasant, actually. I feel like I need to look up a recipe mm-hmm. for soul cakes just so I can experience it myself. Yeah, I will definitely post a recipe on our Instagram for this episode. But yeah, I went looking to see what exactly they were. And they look kind of like muffin top biscuits in like a cookie format. So they're not exactly like soft, but they're not exactly hard either. But I remember having them in London, England, because they kind of came with our breakfast. Oh, okay. Which was very interesting. And granted, I didn't go during, like, Samhain. I was there in the middle of, like, I think the end of June, beginning of July. Don't quote me on that. It's been a couple of years. <laughs> but, yeah, I actually, I did get to have one of these. They made gluten-free ones for everybody that had celiacs on the trip, which was really cool. And I had a blueberry one. Aw. Yeah. It was really good. I highly recommend them. <laughs> Awesome. I'll definitely have to be baking up myself a batch of soul cakes. Yep. I'm like, I would bake a batch, but I am cursed by my old ancestor who traded their soul to be able to have bread. And somehow down the family line, they're like, oh, this person does not get that skill. So 
<laughs> Here I am today. I'm a chemist who cannot bake. Oh, no. <laughs> Which makes me look like a bad chemist, but I promise I'm not. <laughs> Ray can stand by me. I'm actually very good at chemistry, but I'm like, I, I cannot bake. I mean, on the other hand, I'm really good at baking and not so excellent at chemistry, so maybe we just need to combine our powers. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll be unstoppable then. You're also really good at biology, and I completely suck at bio. <laughs> <laughs> so the distribution of soul cakes was encouraged by the church as a way to replace the ancient practice of leaving food and wine out for roaming spirits. This was commonly referred to as going a sulling when it eventually was taken up heavily by children who would go door to door receiving ale and food and money in return for the now more practice method of just giving them candy because we don't want kids with alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be frowned on in America nowadays. That, that is frowned, frowned upon, upon nowadays. That is frowned upon. <laughs> Yes. Small child, here you go. Here's your ale. Be gone with you. And it's like, okay. <laughs> but yes, that is where trick-or-treating comes from. It's commonly just leaving food out for people that have passed, your deities, and basically those in more need than you. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. I never would have guessed that. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Is it back to me now? It's back to you now. The ball is in your court. <laughs> Although I did leave a note because I've been like going through. I'm like, okay, Ree's going to talk here. And I just wrote Salem down for here. I'm like, what about Salem? <laughs> why are we talking about Salem? <laughs> well, I will tell you listeners why we are talking about Salem. <laughs> So I wanted to go into a little bit about black cats because uh, there's definitely a lot of superstitions around black cats as well as I think I see them a lot as a symbol of Halloween. Not me personally, but just when you look at Halloween decorations, it seems like there's a lot of black cats around. <laughs> so they're definitely associated with Halloween. And so I thought it would be good to cover here why we have these superstitions about black cats. Yep. Uh, and thus Salem, apparently. <laughs> yeah. In fact, my mom was talking to me today and she's like, I noticed there's like a lot of differences between my black cat and your black cat because if you guys don't know, they currently have Thackeray and will probably always have Thackeray because Salem is a only child type of child. Um, <laughs> Most only, only child kind of ch children do not have that choice to say no siblings, but Salem has made that choice for the family. She has, she has, because she's very aggressive otherwise, and that's not my baby girl. Um, but she was telling me today, she's like, when I look at Thackeray, I see nothing to do spiritually wise. Like, he is just a cat. He is full cat. He's a chonker. He old, he coming. But she's like, when I look at Salem, she's got the orange yellow eyes and she's pitch black and she just screams long lanky Halloween cat. And then she was like, she kind of reminds me of the nightmare before Christmas cat, but like they twist the tail and it starts like meowing. I'm like, yeah, that, oh, that is Salem. Love the cat. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that's my cat. We've all heard her yell on the podcast. She came in and decided to throw a temper tantrum with me earlier today. 
<laughs> yes, I was very sad when I visited that she was so shy. I wanted to be besties, but she wasn't too sure about me yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's kind of that way with a lot of people. I think there's only been like maybe three people she's met that she's been 100% okay with. Otherwise, she's like, don't wow. mess with me. Don't look at me. I don't exist. And she was that way with <laughs> my... not here. Yeah, she's that way with my parents for a while. And even, like, still to today, like, if mom and dad come in, she might, like, scurry away for a little bit. But then when she, like, starts realizing who it is, she's like, oh, well, hello. I know you people. (laughs) (laughs) I will allow you into my home. (laughs) I will grace you with my presence. Look at me. Rub the belly. I'm beautiful, am I not? (laughs) Definitely sounds like a, a cat thing to say. <laughs> All right, let's get into some more of that cat stuff. So, <laughs> as you probably or possibly already know, much of European folklore associates black cats with witches and misfortune, and thus black cats were considered to be bad luck. And by some today, they still are considered to be bad luck. Now, Going back in history, the first written record of this was in the 13th century, so we're going way back, and this was in an official church document issued by Pope Gregory, god damn it, I fucking memorized Roman numerals in Latin class, and now what my is brain it? is blanking. What is I-X. it? I-X? That, that's nine. Yeah, is it, that's nine? Yeah always get it wrong i'm always like okay it's it's 10 and you add the one i always mess it up that's why i was like i'm gonna say the wrong thing i know i'm gonna say the wrong thing i'm like i i've done too much with tarot cards to not know what they are now <laughs> okay thank you for the the phone a friend help yep. <laughs> i hope you win at cash cab <laughs> uh so like i said this is in the 13th century we have an official ter- church document Issued by Pope Gregory the Ninth in June of twelve thirty-three, and this document stated that black cats were an incarnation of Satan. So this document originally was released in an attempt to stop the cult of Luciferans that was forming in Germany at the time. However, this fear quickly spread across Europe and eventually led to the church-sanctioned witch hunts, which Katie mentioned earlier in this episode. We'll go into those in more detail on my side of things. Definitely. I'm not going to do a a big deep dive into that today, but stay tuned, listeners. Uh, Down the road, we will definitely do an episode on that for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. So this goes uh, into what I was mentioning earlier, bouncing off of a little bit of what Katie said. So as the church gained power, witches were believed to have been viewed as competition for power over the people because historically witches had been trusted by communities and were uh, a very valued member of the community. And so at this point, the church really tried to turn witches into villains And this showed itself in a few different ways. And one of the ways in which this ended up showing itself was that because witches were associated with nature and animals traditionally, uh, that meant that affection between humans and animals became associated with the devil. And thus, a woman who owned a cat quickly became a suspect. (laughs) 
that that's you, Kate. I'm talking about you. I, I actually, I guess I fall into that category now, too. <laughs> I'm like, Damn, we're both suspects. Who the fuck are you looking at, Ray? You have a cat, too. <laughs> in fact, there's actually different meanings for each of the cats and what they, like, go behind. I think tabbies are actually supposed to be related to, like, happiness and joy. Orange tabbies. Damn. You know, he does bring me a lot of happiness and joy. He also brings me a lot of stress. So I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Black cats hold that spiritual category, if I'm not mistaken. Which Very cool. She chose me, so I will take her. She's a little <laughs> bit of a psychopath. We'll take her. We love her. Maybe Ronan kid into my life because he was like, you need more joy. <laughs> you need more joy. Katie's more jokes joy aren't enough. You need more. <laughs> Uh, in any case, now the church also emphasized a respect for authority, which neither an independent woman nor a cat would follow. Now, it is unclear why black cats became the focus of all this negative attention. It has been proposed that perhaps this was because black cats may have been favored by witches at the time for the practical reason that they were believed to be better at catching mice since they blended with the dark so well. Which, Katie, I know can attest to how well black cats blended with the dark. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. My bedroom has a black floor and black ceiling. And I think in one of the episodes we talked about Salem just coming out of the darkness at me. And I thought nope, I was going to die. That. <laughs> like, that happens regularly. In fact, this morning I was like stumbling to the bathroom and my bath my bedroom has like blackout curtains and then my bathroom's like a deep blue. So it's kind of dark in there too. So I was walking into the bathroom and I accidentally stepped on her and all I got oh. was like, I'm like, what the hell was that? Didn't even sound like a cat. I'm like, are you okay? I'm like demon. Are you all right? Yeah. She's definitely spiritual. Cause the only time I think we've stepped on road and he did not sound like that. He just like full out screamed bloody murder at us. And we were like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that definitely sounds spiritual. If she doesn't sound like a cat. She doesn't. Well, I think she's also kind of used to it too. Cause a mom's blind B she doesn't see well in the dark and C she gets stepped on and unfortunately kicked a lot and it's not purposeful. It's literally just like <laughs> she blends in with her surroundings. Like at night I'm like, I'm going to go grab her and bring her to bed and I have to like squint and like get really close to the floor and like couches and stuff when I'm looking for her I'm like where are you <laughs> mommy wants snuggles <laughs> see not only has she evolved to be black which I'm saying this jokingly since evolution doesn't work this way but not only has she evolved to be black to catch black to catch mice I mean she evolved to be black to hide from, from mama who wants snuggles. <laughs> yes, yes. She's like, I don't want cuddles right now. I will wake you up at 3 a.m. and only 3 a.m. to smack your face a little bit and, like, give you needs and then nudge your nose. And then when you start falling back asleep, I'm going to smack you again. <laughs> 3 a.m. is the kitty hour. Not the witching hour, but the kitty hour. Yeah. And unfortunately, if I, like, move anywhere between, like, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., she's like, it's snuggle time. I'm like, no, I'm just rolling over, please. <laughs> you might need to see a therapist about this. <laughs> Ree, I thought you were my therapist. <laughs> I can't do this alone. Please don't leave me. 
back to it here. <laughs> so, since this became a common superstition in Europe that these black cats were associated with witches, unfortunately, Puritans brought this black cat superstition with them to America. Now, probably the most common superstition that arose regarding black cats was that to cross your path with a black cat was a bad omen, as it could be on a mission from a witch, it could be the witch herself, or it could be the devil. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it escalated very quickly. That, that was like skipping rungs on the ladder. Somebody was jumping. They were like, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, what? <laughs> Now, uh, it was believed that witches used this transformation to a black cat to hide their identity and also to be able to cast spells in secret or even speak to the devil through their cats. So <laughs> apparently there's a whole bunch of reasons why a witch might transform into a black cat or have a black cat. But uh, if this happened to a peasant during the Renaissance, um, if a black cat crossed their path, they would likely rush to the church to have the curse removed from them. And thus, it's believed that the church probably encouraged the superstition as they were paid to bless the peasants and remove curses from them whenever a black cat walked in front of them. <laughs> I mean, it's a good business strategy. I mean, yeah, that's a very good business strategy. <laughs> and this belief that black cats uh, more so were an omen of death, that belief is believed to have specifically originated with the Norman and Germanic people. Now, the common fear of black cats uh, that we just discussed, this ended up leading to a mass culling of black cats historically, which was likely a huge influence on the bubonic plague that killed over 25 million people in the span of five years, because with all these cats killed the mice and rats became overpopulated very quickly and people didn't realize that the plague was actually from fleas on the mice and rats and not from these evil black cats cursing them <laughs> karma's a bitch now isn't it <laughs> don't fuck with my cat man <laughs> you fuck with my cat you get the plague you get the plague no ifs ends or buts <laughs> Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Go to the plague. Go straight to the plague. Everything with black cats just seems to escalate very quickly. It does. <laughs> now, even to this day, many people still believe in these old superstitions. And unfortunately, because of that, we do see increased rates of mistreatment of black cats compared to other cats. And especially increased cruelty of black cats during Halloween. Now... I originally heard about all this when I volunteered at an animal shelter uh, back when I was much younger. And uh, that was one thing that was a policy at the animal shelter is there's pretty much a lockdown on adoptions of all black cats. Once we hit October, there was no more black cat adoptions. And actually, it might have even started right before October. I'm not sure if it was like beginning September or October. Mm -hmm. But in any case, a lot of shelters have that policy to protect these cats because... Uh, there's just that concern that people could be adopting these cats for the very wrong reason and they're not going to loving homes. Yeah, I actually got really lucky with my cat because I adopted her on October 18th. Wow. Yeah, she's my just Halloween past baby. Your, your adoption anniversary with Salem. I am just past my adoption anniversary with Salem and I completely forgot about it. So I'm going to have to get her a couple toys and some good 
kitten chow and stuff. <laughs> Hopefully she didn't hear me because she's been peeking down the hall and like jumping this way. And then she dodges back out into the darkness. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> she's prepping to scare you later. She's practicing. She, she is. She's practicing. She's like, I'm going to get you when you least suspect it. <laughs> now year round so not just during halloween and october black and black and white cats are adopted less than other colors of cats on average and they also tend to have longer stays at shelters um so if you are looking for a friendly feline to adopt uh definitely check out well i guess maybe not this month during october but definitely uh check out black and black and white cats because they're more likely to not get adopted out. And so they definitely need that extra love and care. Yeah. However, I wanted to end this section on a good note. Because we all know that we love our black cats like Salem. And so I did want to mention <laughs> that uh, some cultures do believe that black cats represent good luck as opposed to bad luck. Now, one thing that really jumped out at me since... Uh, my family has a strong Welsh heritage and I still hold on to some Welsh traditions. So my, my heritage is very important to me in that regard. And so I was really uh, excited when I found out that Welsh folklore is one of these cultures that has um, a lot of beliefs that black cats can be good luck. And so it was indicated in some of these old Welsh folk tales that owning a black cat would bring good luck as well as that the cats could predict weather. <laughs> So if the cat is facing the fireplace, that means frost or snow is on the way. If the cat is acting frisky, then bad weather is coming. If the cat starts washing her face, that means strangers are coming to visit the home soon. And if the cat washes both her face and her ears, then it's going to rain soon. <laughs> So there you go, Katie. We can jot that down and you can have your own weather system with Salem. <laughs> I, I will try to figure that out, but Salem is such a strange cat that I don't think it's going to work. I'll watch she that might be a little uh, out of connection with the weather system. <laughs> well, considering this cat literally rolls over for belly rubs and what I call squish squishes, which is basically like me just like kind of like aggressively needing her and like messing up her fur. Not to the point where she gets hurt, but like Enough that, like, a normal cat would be like, no, stop, and, like, swat at you. Like, I I don't think Salem's accurate at predicting the weather. We're just going to go with that. She is good at, like, bringing me my pendulum and stuff, though, because she picked oh. up the tarot cards the other day in their bag. I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, and, like, dragging it. I'm like, I guess somebody wants to talk, so here we go. <laughs> I'll take this as a sign. <laughs> now there is was still some people in wales who did believe black cats were bad luck and followed more of the traditional european superstitions and there was also a belief apparently that cats born in may were bad luck because they brought snakes inside <laughs> so we do have some interesting superstitions in wales about cats <laughs> And then, like I said, they also held, um, or some of the Welsh people also held the general belief, like the rest of Europe, that cats could be witches in disguise. So it's a little bit of a mix. There's one other Welsh folklore associated with cat black cats I wanted to bring up, and this one is specifically associated with death. 
And so it was believed that if a black cat ran out of a house immediately after a death, that meant that the person had gone to hell. Whereas if it was a white cat that ran out of the house, they went to heaven. And likewise, if a cat ran down a tree, the person who died went to hell. And if the cat ran up the tree, they went to heaven. So I guess that's not a good sign for you, Katie, since there's a black cat in your house. You know what? I feel like I'd have more fun in hell anyway, but <laughs> on the opposite note, I want to know, do they ha- are, are your Welsh people just keeping two cats in the house? Like, do they just have <laughs> one black and one white at all times just to make sure that they got one or the other to run out of the house when they're ready? Or is it like Groundhog's Day when they drag <laughs> both cats into the house after the person has become deceased and just let them go and see what happens? <laughs> That iteration sounds particularly amusing. I don't think that's how it works, but I do find that amusing to think about. Oh no, Grandma Jean died. Grab the cats! Get the cats together! We need to know where Grandma ended up. Oh my god. That's terrible. Oh god. Yeah, I'm definitely going to hell. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there are a few other cultures I wanted to mention briefly that believe black cats are good luck. They were especially worshipped in ancient Egypt. So not only were cats uh, worshipped in ancient Egypt, but apparently black cats were especially symbolic in ancient Egypt. They are also a symbol of good luck in Japan, especially for single women to attract fine suitors. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh la la. Ooh la la. <laughs> Here you go. The, the Scottish believe that a stray black cat on your doorstep brought prosperity, so maybe she needs to be on your peeing on your doorstep instead of inside. Well, I mean, she is peeing by the front door. There you go. Maybe so, it's a sign of good luck. Maybe it's a sign of good luck. So <laughs> I'll take it as that. But I'm still going to blow cinnamon in my front door at the beginning of each month, (laughs) just to make sure. Uh, Southern France held the belief that treating a black cat well brings good luck, so there's another good one for you. In the United Kingdom, keeping a black cat on a ship secures safe passage. And another UK belief is that if there's a black cat in the audience... On the opening night of a play, it will have a long and prosperous season, which that one jumped out at me since I know we're both big theater people. But it also made me question, why do we have a black cat in the audience? Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why not have a black cat in the audience? <laughs> and finally, my last one is that Italians believe that a sneezing black cat brought good luck. So if Salem's ever sneezing, that's a good sign, I guess. Well, I mean, usually when Salem's sneezing, unfortunately, this cat does not hide illnesses very well. It's usually on me. Like, she's up in my face and she will sneeze on me. I'll take the sneeze over the ladder, which is her, unfortunately, getting sick on me. Because... Aww. Yeah, like, they told me, they're like, cats are notorious for hiding illnesses. Bullshit. It's mom, I don't feel good. Let me lay on you for a little bit and then I'm going to give you this face of, I don't feel so good. (laughs) I'm going to be like, oh shit, what's happening? (laughs) We are very close though. That is is my little familiar. I love her dearly. Well, I'll 
bring it back to you. Alrighty. Well, going forward with the idea of familiars, but actually not familiars, because we're not going to discuss that today. We're going to discuss another aspect that is very commonly practiced today, which is divination. Now, it is an important aspect of Samhain as there's that temporary connection with the other world and as a way to communicate with the deceased and tell people's fortunes or seek answers for the future. Like we were explaining kind of at the beginning with how people would gather and basically try to predict each other's futures. And then there were more practiced people like Druid priests and other priests in the Celts. So more common practices that were used back then were used with like fruits and vegetables and nuts. So they were often used to tell the future and seek answers of the unknown in early practices and are still carried on to this day, primarily with questions revolving around marriage and love, which we will get into here momentarily. Today though, there's a wide amount of tarot and oracle spreads that pertain to Samhain or Halloween. And many people still practice the art of fortune telling this day and predict the future on Halloween night. Now, I did say that this is one that I commonly do. I usually do it to myself and friends who are willing. Please, as a disclaimer, do not go over and predict somebody's future that does not want it predicted. It's rude. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I've seriously considered that before. Like, would I want a tarot reading? And I'm like, I don't I don't know if I want to know. So my experience with tarot and like Oracle, cause I do both. Um, tarot is going to give you a more general overview, at least in my practice, it does with Oracle. That's more of like asking a question, getting an answer. It pertains a lot towards the idea of runes, which are the Nordic like stones that used to have the carvings of like the Nordic sigils for each of the deities or common like occurrences in mythology such as Ragnarok but it's the art of basically giving you a heads up as to what might possibly be coming and not necessarily giving away the whole entire thing. Okay. There are certain sensitives and psychics out there that are willing to actually delve a little bit deeper and might have a clearer picture through the use of clairvoyance or other clair senses, which I also will not get into today. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we'll dive into that at some point, but probably yeah. not today. <laughs> Another common practice is using spirit boards on Samhain or Halloween, because you might get clearer connections. I don't fully recommend that, but it is commonly practiced that people will use Ouija boards or pendulum boards, which they're two different things. I prefer a pendulum because I feel like I have more control, but to each their own and practice safely. Yeah, don't be bringing any Ouija boards into my house when you're being a I'm like, I'm supposed to have one in this house, supposedly. I don't know. I don't know. Mom, I know you're listening to this. I didn't bring it in. According to one of Nana's things, there's still one here. I just don't know where it is. I don't know where it is. And I've never touched it. So I'm like, you know what? Nothing weird's happening other than my regular ghost visits. I'm like, we're, I'm okay. I'm okay. We're just not going to touch it. 
So yeah, look to your spiritual practicers if you do want a prediction on Halloween night or Samhain night, depending on what you celebrate. There are many people out there that are willing to give you free palm readings, tarot readings, and then there are others that do look for a price, but usually it's not anything too drastic. So do you want me to start with the Apple stuff and you add in as we go? Is that what we're going to do? Because <laughs> I didn't oh. go too deep once I noticed that you actually had Apple stuff going. I'm like, hold up. <laughs> uh, let me see here. Um, Here, let me start with some of my other stuff first. And then when we get to Apple's, I'll let you take it over for your Apple stuff. <laughs> All right, so let's get to matchmaking. So I'm gonna start us off with a few different matchmaking techniques and then we'll get into our apples because everybody loves apples. Yes. <laughs> except for me, I'm not a big fan of apples. I was about to say, I'm like, except for me because I don't like their texture. <laughs> so one of the big ones, uh, this is one that I've heard of before, but also one that popped up a lot when I was doing this research is um, actually, you know what, before I get into it, I just realized, let me start us off with just saying that Halloween used to be a big matchmaking holiday. And so that's why we're getting into matchmaking. You might be wondering right now, I just realized, why are we talking about matchmaking in Halloween? <laughs> Halloween is for the lovers, okay? <laughs> yes, yes. Halloween isn't just about spooky shit, it's also about finding your true love. Little did you know, Halloween's the real Valentine's Day. So now that we've gotten that away, let me get back to it. <laughs> So one of the, the biggest matchmaking traditions that I found for Halloween was looking into a mirror while in a dark room and while holding a candle. This is supposed to show the face of a woman's future husband in the mirror. And in some tellings, I also read that the woman also needs to be holding a bowl of water with an egg in it. And she's looking over her shoulder. So I guess there's some different levels of complexity with this one. <laughs> Take your pick if you want an egg or not. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to start off with this one because it apparently was a common belief in the late 1800s going into early 1900s. And so this was one of the more common matchmaking traditions that people would engage in on Halloween. And uh, another uh, variation on this was in 1914 specifically... Uh, in America, some women would walk backwards in bright moonlight, holding a hand mirror and reciting an incantation, and then the face of their future spouse, again, would hopefully show up in the mirror. I've also heard of that one as well. <laughs> so something with mirrors and, and seeing your future husband. <laughs> I would go ascend over tea kettle. This is why I'm single. I can't perform these acts. <laughs> Now, another one, uh, this one I particularly enjoyed. This originated as a Celtic legend and then continued as more of a tradition in Scotland, where single women would name a hazelnut for each of their suitors and toss them into a fire. The one uh, that burned to ashes was usually considered to be their future husband, and then the ones that popped were considered to be unsuitable suitors. However, I did read from one source that some legends actually reversed that, where the ones that burned ashes were supposed to be unsuitable and the ones that popped were the suitable ones. So I guess it depends on what variation you're going with, but that was one that definitely interested me. And uh, 
Another variation on the chestnut tradition is you have one chestnut that represents you and another one or two representing suitors. And then if they burn brightly together, that match was successful. Um, if one of the two chestnuts popped, then the love would not be true. And one nice thing about this particular variation on it is that multiple suitors could be compared to one another in this manner <laughs> and how they would match specifically with you. Uh, continuing along our line of nuts, <laughs> if a woman ate a mix of walnuts, hazelnuts, and nutmeg before bed on Halloween, she was supposed to dream of her future husband that night. There's also a tradition where the first woman to find a chestnut burr at a party would be the first to marry. And I looked up chestnut burr because I've definitely not been around chestnut trees a whole lot. And apparently that's the little spiky seed balls uh, that the, the chestnut tree <laughs> drops. <laughs> My God, I've never been around chestnut trees, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so apparently the first woman who could find one of the little spiky seed balls, uh, they'd be the first to marry. And then, let's see, I believe this is our our last one for re representing nuts in matchmaking. This one's actually probably my favorite of all the nut ones. <laughs> so taking walnut shells, filling the wax, and then topping them with colored candles. Now, each of these colored candles would represent different suitors and different women. Now, the boats that sailed together were meant to be together. The first boat to reach the other side would be the first person to wed. And then if, an if a candle extinguished and the light flickered out, that meant that that woman's life would be spent as an old spinster. So I, I enjoyed the, the walnut boats. I was like, yeah, let's make some walnut boats. I like walnut boats. I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> and then before we get to our apples, our other food tradition I wanted to bring up really quick is in 18th century Ireland. A woman could bury a ring in mashed potatoes, and then whoever found that ring would find true love. So it's not necessarily matching the cook to the person who finds the ring. It's just that whoever finds the ring, like, they're the next one who's going to find love. And there's another Irish tradition that also involves a ring, um, as well as a thimble and a dime, in which the these different items would each be placed into a bowl of kale and onions. So similar, but instead of... Uh, mashed potatoes, we're talking about kale and onions. And whoever got the ring would be the next Mary. Whoever got the thimble would be a spinster, hence the thimble. And then whoever got the dime would get fortune and fame. Though I did want to make a quick note here that the dime may have originated when the Irish immigrated to America because that particular um, article was talking more about Irish-American traditions. So I'm not sure entirely about that. But yeah. Now we got our potatoes out of the way because... Katie knows I love potatoes, so I couldn't leave the potatoes out. I also love nuts, too. I'm a foodie, I guess. Just not when it comes to apples. <laughs> One apple a month keeps the doctor at bay. Not away, but at bay. <laughs> well, then, hopefully, uh, apples will bring uh, future husbands. I don't know. Let's find out. So, like Katie said earlier... Apples were considered a symbol of fertility, and thus they were associated with a lot of these different matchmaking traditions. So I'll let you uh, start us off here with our diff different apple traditions, Kitty. Okay. Like I said, I only have two because I noticed that like you started researching them. I'm like, God damn it. She took him. She took him already. I can't take him. 
But anyway, if you have anything to add on, just go ahead and interrupt and put it in. I guess. <laughs> that sounded so wrong. Anyway. <laughs> so during the annual celebration of Samhain, young unwed couples would try to bite into an apple floating in water or hanging from a string. This was commonly referred to as bobbing for apples or the snap tradition. Snapdragon, I think it is. Uh, I read snap apple. Oh, but... snap, snap apple. Yeah. But that was also uh, early 20th century in America is where I heard, read about snap apples. So the earlier tradition before that, that originated from the Celts. That could totally be Snapdragon. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> the first to bite into the apple would be the next one allowed to marry. Another practice was called snap apple or Snapdragon. This is the simplified version where it is tied up with a string and the apple is then lowered and raised, kind of like what we would do with a pinata nowadays. However, it is stated that if you were able to bite the apple, the piece of apple that you bit should be placed under your pillow so you may dream of your future sweetheart. As you may have guessed, as Reese said, apples are also a very predominant sign of fertility and abundance, and so are pomegranates. See, I could, I could be down for some pomegranate traditions. Let's have some mm -hmm. pomegranates. <laughs> I think those come closer to winter because that's one of your winter fruits. Oh, yeah, I bet you're right. Mm -hmm. I bet you're right. <laughs> so the next one that I have, if you don't have anything to add on with apple bobbing. Um, the only thing I have to add specifically to the apple bobbing is I did read there's some variations with that as well. Where in some cases, women might write their names into the apples and let the men bob for the apples to see which woman they were paired with. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard of that one before. I've always heard of the woman bobbing for the apple, not the men bobbing for the mm -hmm. apple. So that was an interesting uh, take on it. But yeah, that's all I have to add for the <laughs> apple bobbing specifically. <laughs> I've, I've only bobbed for apples once and I nearly drowned. So we don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you don't like apples. <laughs> Traumatic memories. I just remember I was like, yeah, bobbing for apples. I can do this. I'd like go after one. And unfortunately, like I shouldn't be like nearly drowning in maybe like a two foot like tub of water where my face is only in it. But I'm kind of dumb that way. And I like opened my mouth and my brain was like, we can breathe now. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Came up coughing and everything. And my friends are like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> why apple bobbing has fallen out of tradition is because it's a safety hazard apparently. this is why we can't have nice things anyway so next we have the apple peel toss which it dates back to a time where apple peeling was a community-wide endeavor in new england a single young woman would peel an apple in one long strand and then toss the peel over her shoulder. If it landed in the shape of a letter, that was supposed to be her spouse's first initial. See, I haven't tried that. And I actually originally heard about that uh, one tradition on a different podcast. <laughs> Funny thing is, um, and those podcasters said that they actually tried it and like got initials or whatever. I've never done it. So I've always been curious, like if I do it, am I going to get the Watson's initial? <laughs> is it going to be something else? <laughs> See, I, 
I haven't done that one specifically, but there is another practice that is common within the spiritual community that you get rainwater, which is basically you just set out a jar in the rain, collect some water, place that in a bowl, grab a pink candle and allow the wax to kind of burn down on that a little bit. Like your regular like spell candles that are like basically like a tear candle, old like Victorian candle type of thing. Don't use those. Grab yourself like a candle that can actually like hold some wax and wait for enough of that pink wax to burn down. It can also be used with a red candle. But once you have enough wax and your bowl of water is simply sitting still, there's no like disruption going to it, pour the wax into the bowl. And basically as you pour that slowly and consistently, like don't just dump it in, pour it slowly enough that it could start to form a letter. And that letter is supposed to be the first initial of the person that you were supposed to marry. Wow. Okay. There you go. Little witch tip. I've done that one. <laughs> little witch tip for <laughs> seeking the, the future of who you may marry. <laughs> yes, yes. Alright, well, I, if if that's what you got for apples, I have just a couple more apple traditions to add to our list of apple traditions. <laughs> the other two I have regarding apples is, again, we are going back to the mirror, apparently, where eating an apple in front of a mirror would conjure up the face of your husband right before you took the last bite. So I think the idea is that the last bite is reserved for your, your future husband. Which I have heard um, something... I've heard, like, a story along those lines before. So not necessarily mm -hmm. a tradition, more like just a story being told that kind of brought that into it. So now where it came from. And then the other one I found with apples is that some people believe that the number of seeds in an apple could indicate how someone may be courted or how successful their relationship may be in the future. Actually, I'm not going to read it off, but I actually found in one of my sources like a list, I think, I can't remember how many, it was a long list, it was like 1 through 15 or something, of number of apple seeds and then what it meant. <laughs> so this is, this is detailed shit here. <laughs> Pay attention to your apple seeds, your arsenic pods. Exactly, your arsenic pods. Alright, now to wrap up our matchmaking traditions, I have one final matchmaking tradition that I saved for last because this one, this one got me. I was like laughing so hard when I saw this in all due respect because probably, if I remember correctly, more than 50% of my bloodline is British. So honestly, I'm, I'm probably laughing at my ancestors right now, but... Um, <laughs> In any case, uh, this is a tradition from Scotland and Ireland where women and both women and men were blindfolded and then led into kale patches. <laughs> yes, kale, the health food of today. The health food of uh, today. Nom, yes. nom, nom. <laughs> where they would fumble around until they uprooted a stalk of kale. Now, the, how the roots appeared on the kale would indicate what their future spouse would be like. So for some examples, you can imagine a short and plump root, a long and skinny root, an old and cracked root. Dude, I was thinking like how they like twist and turn down at the bottom like a crazy root. She crazy. <laughs> I mean, maybe... Don't want to really twist it. <laughs> uh, now, taste would also be an indicator of personality. It could taste sweet or bitter or 
other tastes. <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> and <laughs> the amount of dirt stuck to the stalk of the kale indicated the size of either the dowry or the fortune that would result from this this future marriage. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's some food for thought. I definitely knew that apples were associated with matchmaking. Never heard of kale, so I just thought I'd throw that out here. <laughs> that is definitely interesting. I've never heard of that one. Yeah. So when it comes to matchmaking, I did want to point out at the end here that all of these traditions are believed to rely upon the spirits from the other side to provide this information. That's the whole reason that this matchmaking was traditionally done on Halloween or Samhain was again going back to the thinning of the veil and this belief that we are closer to the the world of the dead and that spirits have this this knowledge or this information that we can do things like fortune telling or these different matchmaking games and hopefully get some sort of accurate information at that time. Now, as far as socially, why were these matchmaking traditions so popular? Uh, one thing to consider is that especially Victorian women had pretty much no control over their future love lives. And so these games made them feel like they had some sort of knowledge or control over their future and who they would wed. And so these different matchmaking traditions therefore gained a lot of popularity just in the sense that it, it gave women this chance to have some control over their life in a time period where that was not something women had very much of. And as women gained more and more independence over the 20th century, these matchmaking games became less and less popular, which is why a lot of historians seem to make this connection between the matchmaking games and Victorian women having no control over their future lives and who they're going to marry and all of that. Uh, however, as the matchmaking games became less and less popular, the witch became a very iconic symbol, more and more so in association with the celebration of Halloween. And it's believed this was in contrast because the witch was viewed as a symbol of power, a powerful, attractive woman who had control over her future love life <laughs> and was thus the ideal woman to be. <laughs> I have no control over my life. Let me just <laughs> let me just add that in. It is chaos. <laughs> it is utter chaos. <laughs> you were all so confused when you thought that witches could control us because we definitely can. <laughs> so says uh... Katie. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to to wrap it up there uh, with the matchmaking traditions, just a, a short explanation of why was matchmaking such a big deal back in the day and why did we see it start to lose popularity since we don't see a whole lot of this going on today, at least in my experience. Besides the bobbing for apples, I still definitely see the bobbing for apples thing. Not a whole lot, but I mean, I have seen it some, especially at like festivals and stuff, but it, I don't think it's as strongly associated now with the matchmaking tradition. Now it seems more like just a fun thing to do. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Some some Halloween matchmaking for all you lovers out there looking for your future husband, wife, what enter whatever term here you'd like to use <laughs> for your future partner. <laughs> and there's some traditions you can try to try to uh, decipher who it might be that you're looking for. <laughs> definitely, definitely. 
Well, I think that's it for the traditions that we have this year. We do hope that if you hear this before the evening of All Hallows' Eve, because it is coming out on the 31st, that maybe you practice some. I know there's some in here that I'm going to do this year. I might try to make soul cakes. I might harass my mother into trying to help me with that, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually excited about the soul cakes thing. I've yeah. never heard of them before, but after talking about them today, now I'm like, damn, I need to get me a recipe for some soul cakes and try this out. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And then there's there's the goblin that wanders my house. We will definitely be snuggling on the couch and watching some movies. I might end up streaming that evening. I'm not entirely sure. Depends on if my internet wants to hold out or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on how late I get home, I was definitely considering playing some spooky games. So we'll Ooh. see how that works out. I yes. might just get home and be so tired that it's just not going to happen. But <laughs> I got my fingers crossed that hopefully <laughs> there will be some extra spooky stuff happening on Halloween night for me. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, listeners, we really hope that you have a happy holiday and that you stay safe Practice all your safety measures as usual. Please check your candy. Please make sure that if you have young ones going out, there is a supervised adult with them or you know where they're going, okay? Definitely, for sure. Make sure that the little ones are being looked after or you have some sort of safety check-in system so you know what's going on and where everybody is, for sure, and just... Do what you gotta do to stay safe out there. But yeah, we hope you enjoy your Halloween or Samhain, whatever <laughs> you may be celebrating tonight. And maybe you'll even uh, join us in trying out some of these traditions <laughs> that we discussed today as maybe some new traditions to try and maybe some of these you already are celebrating. So we definitely hope to hear from you. Please write in and let us know or post on our, our uh, comment on our our Facebook for the, the post that we released today to, to mark this episode. Give us a comment. Let us know what traditions are you doing for Halloween or Samhain? What do you do every year to celebrate this holiday? We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? 